let's get into uh, Revelation. So if you have your Bible, I wanna invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. Maybe for some, a strange text for Easter, but I think there's actually nothing more appropriate for us to be looking at here uh, as we finish out what we've been doing for the last uh, several weeks in Lent, looking at the book of Revelation. We're gonna finish out here with this beautiful vision of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. If you don't have a Bible, you grab a device, download it, turn there. It's the very last uh, page of the very last book of the Bible, so it'd be nice and easy to find. Hear these words from the Apostle John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done, it is completed. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now skip on down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to, to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the reading. This is the vision of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm just gonna tell you up front there's no way that I can bring this home to you. Like, this is, 
like a preacher's worst nightmare, like trying to preach a text like this and get it into your bones. Because like a friend of mine said, like when we're trying to preach passages like this, he said, it's the temptation for us on days like this is to swing for the fences and throw our backs out as pastors. Because it's such a glorious vision. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's not meant to be analyzed. It's not meant to be broken down into propositions and diagnosed and analyzed rationally, although it is rational. It is meant to be a full, immersive experience. Like if I could right now, I would take you into a 3D or 4D movie theater and you know surround sound and I would crank it up. It's meant to be felt in your body. And so what I'm gonna do here is a poor, probably a, a, an impoverished job of just sketching out for you and skipping rocks across the lake just a deep, deep reservoir of goodness. But I hope that it encourages you because what Easter is meant to be for us every year, every day, every week, and what it meant to those to whom this was written, it's meant to be a living hope. These words here about the resurrection, and there's lots of different ways to preach the resurrection. So like letting you into kind of a pastor's world. You can preach this so many different ways from so many different text. It's all over the Bible. This is one of the central points of the Bible is to show us that this has been God's plan since the beginning for God to come and to renew the world through his life and his death and his resurrection, becoming human, dying, and then rising again and ascending back to God and establishing new heavens and new earth and new creation. And there's lots of different ways to preach the resurrection. We could talk about the historical evidence and I could show you how there's really good evidence to believe in the historicity and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but I don't wanna do that this morning. I wanna answer the question this morning, so what? Because the resurrection was never the end point. It was the beginning of something new. What difference does the resurrection make in our lives right now, other than the fact that it's a historical event, and it was. But when you read the New Testament, you begin to see how deeply Jesus' resurrection revolutionized and energized their entire way of life. More than a set of historical facts, and it's not less than that, but more than a historical set of facts. I mean, this was a credible historical event with many eyewitnesses. But more than that, the early Christian community came to talk about the resurrection as a way of life. Every time the resurrection shows up in the key passages of the New Testament, it's always an encouragement to live a certain kind of way with a certain kind of power. Like what you're doing in the world matters. Keep going because Jesus has been risen from the dead, raised from the dead. Resurrection becomes kind of a shorthand for a new pattern and a new power for life. And what God does to Jesus in raising him from the dead isn't just proving that God exists, like some kind of a syllogism that we need to memorize so that we can know that God exists in the world. It's not meant to just be proof that he exists or that Jesus was the son of God, although it does tell us that. It's meant to show us a pattern and to give us power for what God is going to do, not just with Jesus, but in the entire world and in our own lives, right here and right now. And that's the point why I wanted to bring this from Revelation, is in Revelation, John is writing to this mixed group of people On the one hand, you've got a powerless people suffering violence and and poverty and persecution. And on the other hand, you have a powerful, prosperous group of people who are benefiting from and colluding with the Roman Empire. And Jesus writes to these people 
And he, and he asked the question, John, how should we live as disciples in a time of so much uncertainty, anxiety, polarization, nationalism, like all the things that we're experiencing right now, we're all there in the book of Revelation with all kinds of rich imagery and symbolism, which if you want to go back and listen to our sermon series, you can understand a little bit more. John is drawing together themes from the Old Testament and themes from Roman propaganda and themes from astrology and culture to paint this vivid picture of life and reality with God. And what he says is really interesting at the beginning of Revelation, the very first chapter, he says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Chapter three, he says, Jesus is the first fruits or the beginning of a new creation. And so what we see ironically is that sometimes we have in our heads like resurrection is the end of the story. But what we see in Revelation is actually uh, resurrection is not the end, but it's the beginning of a bodily life with God forever. And that's what gives these people struggling hope. That's why Peter, writing to a similar audience, dispersed and scattered around the Roman Empire, chapter 1, verse 3 of his letter, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I want to encourage you, like, again, skipping rocks. But as you go home today, would you... Like, read this together as a family. Would you read this together as roommates? Would you read this out loud? This is poetry. This is intended to dazzle. It's intended to captivate. It's intended to capture our imagination. But let me just give you two big ideas that we see here in the text in terms of what it means to get a living hope from the resurrection of Jesus. One we see in this passage here, in this chapter, we see heaven coming down to transform the earth. The second thing we see is the future breaking into the present. Heaven comes down to transform the earth, and the future breaks into the present. And if you can internalize that reality, if you can internalize Jesus and what he's doing and bringing heaven to earth and the future into the present, you can live with hopefulness and courage and resilience. Let's look first at heaven coming down to transform the earth. Notice there in verse 21, John says, I see a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice that we don't escape to heaven as disembodied souls. This idea of newness, the word kainos, is not like new in the sense of like something completely different or completely other. This is a world, this is our world, the earth, rehabilitated, renewed, redeemed, restored. But notice he doesn't say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. I'm breathing new life. I'm refurbishing the earth. Heaven comes down to us. We, us, we don't float away to heaven as disembodied souls sitting on clouds, strumming harps forever with Jesus. That's not the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. To put it in the words of Plato, we are not just ghosts in a machine waiting to be liberated and that kind of the, the husk to be removed and our real person, the soul, to be liberated to a disembodied life after death. Heaven comes down to us. 
The future is embodied. The future is material. It is a future of physicality, of matter being renewed and restored. It is the answer to the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's doing is reuniting heaven and earth. These are two poles of the material world that belong together. And he's bringing them back together, fusing them back together. So heaven is not gonna be like my kids, you know, when they were little, they used to build Legos. And they would build, I mean, my, one of my sons just build these elaborate Lego buildings. And then inevitably, one of the other kids, usually a younger kid, would come by, they'd, they, when, when they weren't around, they would come by and they would kind of sneak and they would just wipe the whole thing out. Much to the chagrin of my son who had spent many hours working on his Legos. And that's the vision that some of us have of what God's gonna do at the end of time. He's gonna wipe the earth and start over. Which begs the question, does anything we do now actually matter then? But the future, John says, is a city. A city coming down to the earth. If you're an urban person, you know, like you ought to be excited. Like the future is a city. If you're a person that wants to return to nature, I'm sorry. Notice that a farm doesn't come down from heaven. Sorry. A, A suburb doesn't come down from heaven. A beach doesn't come down from heaven. A city comes down from heaven. And this is a contrast between the two cities in in, in Revelation, the unholy city of Babylon, which is a city, a great human city representing Babel, representing Assyria, representing Rome, representing any city since that in rebellion against God tries to ascend to heaven, tries to make a name for itself by its own effort apart from God. That's what Babylon represents. And he's contrasting the new city, the new holy city, which comes down to us as a gift from God. It is not something we build our way up to. It is something that is given to us as gifts. And that's why we have all this language around the the garden and the city and the temple. I mean, this is the world that we all long for. Even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, like you want this world to be true. Even if you don't believe in the resurrection, you should want this to be true. And there's something in you, I believe, that tells you that it's true. This vision, as he draws us in to heaven coming down to earth, it's like this grand finale medley. Like if you, if you go to watch fireworks on non-COVID years, like when everybody's out and we're all gathered together to watch the beautiful fireworks, there's that grand finale. I'm from Kentucky when all the country songs are played out together and all the best fireworks are released at the same time. And it's this beautiful, just explosion of joy. And it's bringing together all the themes of the 4th of July into a beautiful, spectacular medley. I, I had an opportunity a couple years ago to go to the Jason Isbell concert uh, here. And if you're not an Isbell fan, I'm sorry, but um, I, I really like him. And, and he came and, and he, at the end, he saves his best stuff for last, right? And it's like this medley of decoration day and all of his best stuff. And the crowd literally explodes to their feet because it's just this amazing, immersive experience, vision, summing up the entire concert. And that's what John is doing here. He's summing up the entire story of the Bible. He's summing up the entire history of humanity, all of our past, all of our future. He's bringing it now into the present, the seeds that were cast. I mean, this is everything in the Bible squashed together into one chapter. This is Genesis in the garden. This is Exodus and the tabernacle and the temple. This is Isaiah and a vision of a future city. This is Ezekiel and a a vision of a future temple. It's like the seed that was planted in the Old Testament flowers and blooms. 
into what we see here in Revelation. And notice what is here in the new heavens, in the new earth, the new city. Let me give you a couple things. The main thing I want you to see is that God is here. God's glorious presence fills, is the center of the reality of our new world. God moves into downtown, so to speak, and he takes up residence. Monument Circle. God lives there. The dwelling place of God is with man. And what's interesting is what's not here. He says there's no temple in the city. Why is there no temple? Because God himself is the new temple. God's glorious presence is at the center of this new reality. And every square inch is meant, all of the descriptions, all the precious stones, all of the gold, all of that stuff, that is meant to be symbolic. It's imagery, it's poetry. It's meant to tell us that all the things that were there in the Garden of Eden, like these jewels are there in the Garden of Eden. These jewels show up again in the tabernacle and the architecture of the tabernacle and the temple. That word, the dwelling place of God means tabernacle. God tabernacles with his people. You see, the garden in Eden, Man, I wish we had time to like do all this. The Garden of Eden was not just a garden. It was a garden temple. It was the original temple where God's presence dwelled, where Adam and Eve enjoyed unbroken, unhindered access to God, intimacy with God, communion with God, what we all long for in our souls to have access to God, to be completely vulnerable, naked and not ashamed in the presence of God, to be fully known and fully loved without any fear or shame or guilt. But because of their sin, they're banned from God's presence. Adam and Eve are sent outside the garden and the swords are put up saying, justice has to be served. You can no longer enter into the presence of God unless there's death. And so in Exodus, we see this theme continue that God liberates his people from oppression so that they can experience his presence. And they build a tabernacle. God gives them instructions on what it would look like for his presence to dwell among them. And there, again, it's a dangerous presence. Don't think of this as just God as some kind of like fairy or, you know, precious moments, angel. Like imagine having a nuclear power plant in your backyard. That's the kind of danger. That's the kind of holiness that God's presence in the midst of his people brings. And this tabernacle was built. And in the center of this tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, the throne room where God's Shekinah glory, the fullness of his presence dwelled with his people. But there was still a barrier. There was a curtain that separated people from God because of their sin. And now once a year, Yom Kippur, the priest would go in and make atonement for the sins of the people at the cost of his life oftentimes. Later, that gets built out into a full temple under Solomon. But again, because of sin and idolatry, God's presence leaves the temple. The people go into exile, but they were in exile long before they physically went into exile. God's presence was gone. And when Jesus comes and he shows up in Palestine, what's the first thing that John tells us in John chapter one? The fullness of grace and truth tabernacled among his people. Jesus is the new tabernacle. Jesus comes as the new temple. His body, he says, when he rises from the dead, will be the new temple. He is the new sacrifice. He is the final sacrifice. He is the final priest. He is the final temple. And when he gives his spirit to his people, he breathes his spirit out. He says, now you are 
the temple of God. All of that presence, all of that longing and desire is now to be found in you. You now have access to God and you become the temple of God's presence. The whole point of this section here is just to remind us that the new city is the new holy of holies. So don't get all hung up and like, if you read the rest of this passage and you, and you see all the, the precious stones and the metals and the numbers, like what's up with 144,000, it's not intended to be a code, some kind of cryptic code to be cracked. All of those numbers, they just mean it's complete. It's full, 12 and 12, a thousand. These are numbers of completion in the Bible. It's done. We now have full access to the Holy of Holies. The veil has been torn because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The, the, the idea here is it's a cube, right? Like all the measurements, it's a cube, just like the Holy of Holies. Now the whole world is gonna be the Holy of Holies. And we once again get to experience intimacy with God, communion with God. Again, all that we long for when we reach for sex and beauty and, you know, addiction, all that we long for in grasping for wealth and power and status and fame, it's all found in God alone. That's the point. You have access to this abundant life. You will see the face of God. The face of God is the fullness of God's presence in the Bible. You will have access to the abundance of salvation. You won't need any of these. These things will be as common. Gold will be as common as anything, as rocks. You're going to walk on it. The tree of life is going to be a forest. I mean, like, did you get the imagery? There's a river running through the middle of the city. And on both sides, there's a tree of life. This is a grove of trees of life. It's meant to point us to the abundance of the garden, now found in the middle of the Holy of Holies, the new city. It's everywhere. You don't have to compete. You don't have to scrap. You don't have to envy. There will be more than enough of God's presence and his goodness for everyone. I mean, can you imagine that kind of abundance? And what we experience now in part, we experience there. I think the point of the city is to say it's there in intensity. It's there in durability. It's there visibly. It is there with density, and we do it together. So there's the presence of God. And again, I'm just gonna list these other things because we don't have time to get into this, but I just want you to see it's all there, all the things we long for, beauty. This is glorious, the new city. We, as the people of God, are pictured as a city wearing a wedding dress, kind of a weird, bizarro, dystopian kind of thing, but it's actually very utopian, right? Like the city is dressed and adorned with the glory of God. We are made beautiful, when you go to a wedding, right, I, I love being a pastor at weddings because I get to stand here and look out, but I also get to look to my left and to see the groom watch the bride walk down the aisle. And in that moment, when everybody stands and the bride is decked out with all the makeup, the wedding dress, nobody looks at the bride and says, man, look how broken she is. I mean, maybe some of you do, but like nobody says like, look how broken she is. Like, no, it's, look how beautiful she is. And nine times out of 10, this guy over here is coming apart in tears. And it's beautiful to watch it. This is what God says will happen at the end to all of us. We will be made beautiful. All of our shame will be gone. All of our imperfections will be covered. We will be beautiful externally, and we will be beautiful internally. Notice that all the beauty in the new, new city 
It is foundational. It is not decorative. It is not aesthetic. It is not secondary. It will become our character and our nature and our essence. You will be beautiful. I mean, I can't think of a word that an image-driven, image-conscious society needs more than the new heavens and the new earth. All that you're longing for, all that you're trying to create on your own is insufficient. That's why we walk around feeling ugly despite all the makeup, despite all of the social media presence. And God says, it's all here. You don't have to grasp for it. It's coming. There's, there's peace in the new city. There's no, no more sea, right? Which in the Bible and in Revelation, the context just means no more chaos, no more injustice, no more evil. The sea is the paragon of evil and chaos. It's gone. There's healing. He's gonna wipe every tear from every eye, every pain, every heartache will be gone. This is holistic, comprehensive healing, personal healing, social healing, cosmic healing and liberation from the disintegrating presence and power of sin. This is a world of justice. This is a world where all that's broken has been made right personally, socially, systemically, and cosmically, top to bottom. There's judgment here, right? God brings true and final justice on everything that is opposed to his kingdom. He brings justice to the systems and the structures and the institutions represented by Babylon. And he brings justice to those who are liars and thieves. In other words, those who refuse to surrender themselves to the lordship of Christ and in committing acts of injustice also tempt others to do the same because they ultimately shake their fists at God and don't want to be a part of his kingdom come on earth. They're excluded. And that's the only way we can have the world that we long for, right? Is if the only just one, God himself, meets out the justice. And then we who are the justified then live that out in his name. There's also reconciliation. Notice all the nations, all the peoples, different cultures gathered together, worshiping God in their own language, with their own cultures, bringing their cultures to God. Those cultures don't get obliterated. They get celebrated in their diversity. Beautiful. We see there's culture making in the new heavens and the new earth. We're still creating. We're still making. Still bringing glory. We reign with God forever. This is Eden restored. Remember in Eden, we're made in the image of God. Go out and and bring the presence of God to the world, build culture, build civilization, build institutions. We see the same thing here in Eden. We don't go and sit on a cloud. We get to work, but without the thistles, without the thorns, without the frustrations, without limited budgets, without minimum wage. (laughs) There's creativity and imagination in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what does all that mean for us? The future, John says, is breaking into the present. Notice the tension of the verb tenses. My mom's an English teacher. Verb tenses matter in the Bible. And notice the tension that John walks in, this vision walks us into. Verse three, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, what tense are those verbs? future. But notice verse five. Behold, at the same time, I am making all things new. What tense is that? Present tense. So which is it? Is it going to happen in the future? Is it going to happen now? John says, yes. It's already happening. 
This, there's this already not yet tension of Jesus's work. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first fruits. He's the power and the pattern for a new creation that is coming into the world. Not just in some future where we sit on our hands and we wait for God to barbecue the world and then bring us into heaven. No, heaven's come to earth now in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's already happening. It's already breaking out right now. This means that in the resurrection, we don't just have a hope for the future. We have a hope from the future that empowers our life in the present. All that you're doing right now in the name of Jesus matters. Though it's not here fully, it is here substantially. Hear me say that. It's not here fully, but it is here substantially. So that means that heaven... It's not a place you go when you die. Heaven is an invisible realm, a dimension of reality that is so close. Jesus says, it's among you. It's in you. It is so close. And it was inaugurated with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And what's happening in the church, what's happening in God's people as we're filled with this spirit is it's becoming more and more visible every day. There's a continuity and a discontinuity between our lives lived now and the new heavens and the new earth. What begins with Jesus and what's hidden will eventually grow in intensity and density and durability and visibility until one day it becomes complete. This should give us hope. Why? Because it's so realistic. It's so realistic. It's more optimistic than the most naive secularist would have us believe. The most naive progressive would have us believe. It is so much more optimistic and pro progressive than the most progressive person could ever imagine. But it's also more pessimistic than the deepest cynic and skeptic would ever dare to open their mouths and say. Right, remember, this is a word written to a group of mostly poor and powerless people under the boot of Roman oppression, people losing their family, people losing their businesses, people losing their lives. Tens of thousands of people were killed during the reign of Domitian, the emperor of Rome at this time. What good would it be to just tell them, hey, just wait for heaven, it's gonna be awesome one day. That's not why Christianity grew in the Roman empire. It didn't grow because they just sang songs about the good old by and by in the future. It grew because it empowered them to live their life in the present. And that is how it always hits those who really get it, the suffering, those whom Howard Thurman, African-American pastor, luminary, the luminary thought leader of the civil rights movement, he got this and he preached this. He, more than anybody else, influenced Martin Luther King Jr., Howard Thurman, it said his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which I recently finished reading, that was the text that King had on him at all times. And some say he even had it on him when he died, when he was shot. And in this book, he wrestles with this question. Isn't Christianity just this otherworldly thing that doesn't offer any real hope for the present? He, he was getting this question all the time from other black and brown people, African-Americans specifically, how can you believe in a religion that oppresses people? How can you who has been so victimized and betrayed by the white church, how can you sing about forgiveness and love and hope? That's too otherworldly, but it doesn't have anything to do with right now. 
And in response, he gave a series of lectures over the course of a couple years that became this book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And here's what he says. Jesus' message focused on the urgency of a radical change in the inner attitude of the people. He recognized fully that out of the heart are the issues of life and that no external force, however great and overwhelming, can at long last destroy a people if it does not first win the victory of the spirit. Again and again, he came back to the inner life of the individual. With increasing insight and startling accuracy, he placed his finger on the inward center as the crucial arena where the issues would determine the destiny of his people. And as he looked into the future and he saw, and he talked a lot about the new heavens and the new earth. That's what all the spirituals were about. They were about this this otherworldly thing breaking into this world right now. And he says, if you understand that future and you understand that that's happening right now, it gives you dignity. Matter of fact, he says, it's the only thing that can give an African-American true dignity to know that God sees me, he knows me, he loves me, he is for me. That is the bedrock upon which you build a life if your back's against the wall, he says. It's the only thing that can give you strength. The only thing that can allow you to fight against what he called the three hounds of hell that hound the oppressed with their backs against the wall. Fear, deception, and hatred. Now, if that kind of hope can give Howard Thurman a living hope, that kind of hope can give us a living hope right now. It's optimistic, right? Because we know that there is a vision of progress. We're not trapped in the cycles of history. Every other religion in the history of the world says that we're trapped in these cycles and we get reincarnated or we come back as something else. Christianity, the Judeo-Christian gift to the world was the vision of progress. We're not just moving in cycles. We're moving towards something new, something better. So it's optimistic because God is our hope and he's making all things new. We can work to bring his presence into the world. We can offer up beauty to the world through art and music and literature and beautiful lives. We can offer justice and reconciliation and peace to the world. We can offer creativity. Every act of the new heavens coming into right now, the future breaking in, is not wasted. We're not just oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll off a cliff or restoring a great painting that's gonna be thrown into the fire. That's what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection. He says, because the resurrection is now, all of your labor is not in vain. There is nothing wasted. Everything will make its way into the new creation. It will be enhanced. It will be intensified, but it will make it there. And it'll be the building blocks on which God builds his new world. And so what we do now is a sign. It's a symbol. It's a foretaste. But it's also so pessimistic because it says, we know it won't finally be complete until God brings heaven down to earth. And so it gives us vision to see through the the myth, the myth of secular progress, which says things are going to get better every successive generation because of science and technology. And we're going to continue to progress financially. Hey guys, look around. How's that working out for us? We're progressing scientifically, financially, technology while regressing in all the ways that really matter, relationally, emotionally, socially, institutionally. We can have a hope for the future that's realistic. It's not based on linear scientific progress, political progress. We don't expect all that to happen right now. 
And we can work in the world with a non-anxious presence, with a confidence, with a resilience. Friends, this is available to all of us. It's way over time. It's available to all of us. So let's just put our stuff aside, and I just want you to think about what it would look like for that hope to enter into your life. This hope that Jesus offers is an invasion into our lives. It is an invasion into our comfort. It is an invasion into the illusions and the deceptions and the spells that we cast on our lives. The cynicism, the despair, the hopelessness, that is all unreality. The true reality of Jesus is that hope has dawned. It is broken into the world through his resurrection and his ascension back to God and his promise to begin making all things new. And notice who it comes to in the book of Revelation. It comes as a gift to who? The moral? Those who've got their act together? Those who are on top in society? Those who are competent? No. Who does it come to? The thirsty. Let he who is thirsty come and drink the waters of life. Are you here and thirsty? Are you thirsty for hope? Are you thirsty for love? Are you thirsty for justice? Are you thirsty for reconciliation? Are you thirsty for the presence of God? Come and drink the waters by grace through faith. Put your hope in Jesus and his resurrection is death for you. And you will experience the resurrection bursting forth. Springs of life. That's what we celebrate in communion. So as we come and we, 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 we take these elements and we pass them out and distribute them, I want you to receive that invitation. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you need to drink from his living waters. It's as simple as saying, hey, Jesus, I, my, my life is despair without you. I have no hope without you. I'm hopeless. I trust you. I love you. I want to give my life to you. Maybe you come and you eat and you drink for the first time. And maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you've thought about this and heard this a million times, but you've grown bored. You've grown restless. You've grown cynical. You're asking that question, so what? You just heard the so what? Heaven is coming to earth. The future is broken into the present. Come and feast. Come and taste again. This reminder that God's new earth is here. His new heavens is here in the resurrection of Jesus. So let's take a moment and let's just cry out to God. Let's confess our sins to God. Let's reach for God. Let's set our gaze. Let's look and behold, set the gaze of our heart on him. Let's trust in him together. When you're ready, we're gonna pass out the elements. If you don't want those elements, you're not a follower of Jesus, just say no thanks as they come by. We'll distribute the elements, let you do your business with God. And then I'll lead us through communion here together. If you're at home, you can go ahead and grab your elements and prepare to take communion. So let's take a few moments and let's cry out to God and then let's take communion together.